And if you are left in the sanctuary, either turn in your Bible to 1 Kings 18, chapter 18, or we will have it on the screen. I want to look again at our verse of Scripture from last Sunday. It's a rather lengthy reading, but I want to read it again. In 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17, it says, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. I'm sorry. From morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, 
to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I want to direct your attention this morning to verses 30, 31, and the first half of 32. Notice in the story, in verse 30, after the prophets of Baal have taken their turn, that it says in verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and here's the phrase, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. I want us to think about (laughs) that part of the story this morning. And I want us to see what Elijah did and what it speaks to us today. I want you actually to look in verse 31 first. Because I think something very significant when Elijah repairs the altar. It says, And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then it says in verse 32, Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So when Elijah builds an altar he builds the altar with 12 stones and he must have communicated this to the people that there was a significance he wasn't just gathering up stones he said no there's going to be 12 stones because they symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel and I think there's a reason that Elijah did this and it was to take them to their past their history. There needed to be some significance that day that was impressed upon the people. This is where God has taken you from. And to talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, 
would have uh, spoken to the people about the covenant that the Lord God has with them. That God has a past. There was a way that God had worked in the past in their lives. In fact, if we rewound in the story all the way back to 12th chapter of Genesis, we see that God calls Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in fact, not only are we looking at a verse of Scripture that relates to revival every day in our devotionals, but also there's a read the Bible through uh, plan at the bottom. In fact, actually, if you click the Scriptures, it'll pull the Scriptures up for you. You don't even have to look them up in your Bible. You can read them right there on whatever device you're on. But right now we're reading through the book of Genesis, obviously. Um, and this story is in there this week that God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, basically, this is what God said, I'll be your God. And what that meant was, I will be your protector. He says that later in Genesis. I'll be your provider. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you purpose and meaning in life. My hand is going to be upon your life. And you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's what God did. His side of the covenant, he was to be protector, provider, redeemer, all of those things. In fact, God's people could have gone through the history, even as we'll read it this week in the book of Genesis, of how God took Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, and even alludes to that, that Jacob comes to a, a pivotal time in his life and God renames him Israel. Uh, which, yes, can mean he who strives with God, but also can be one could be translated I noticed in my Bible the Prince of God but the point was God gave him a name God said you're mine I'm gonna name you and Jacob who becomes Israel has 12 sons and they become the 12 tribes of Israel yeah makes a lot of sense and God works in their life and he eventually takes them to Egypt and they spend 430 years there and then through the life, the stories of Moses and redeeming them out of that and bringing them to the promised land. And you have the stories of not only Moses bringing them to the edge of the promised land, and yes, there's disobedience and there's 40 years of wandering, but then Joshua bringing them in to a land where they didn't build the houses, they didn't plant the crops, but God said, this is your land. And then God brings them not only judges, but he brings them kings. And you have kings like David and Solomon builds the temple. And all of this... And I believe the reason that Elijah on that day took 12 stones is he wanted to remind them that they were God's people. They had a history, and God had been their God. He was provider. He was redeemer. He was protector. He, was all, he had a relationship with them. He wanted to remind them of their past and their history and most importantly, the covenant they had made with God. I've only spoken to you about God's side of the covenant so far. There's another side of the covenant, which was their side of the covenant. Hmm. Which actually brings us to where we are today. Actually, before 1 Kings 18. So think about all that God had done. 
And in 1 Kings 16, it won't be on the screen, but you can look it up in your Bible, verse 29, Ahab becomes king. Oh, and just, I want you to, I want you to understand in context of what I've just said to you about their past and the covenant that God has made with them, I want you to hear these words of what God said in his scripture about King Ahab. It says in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now, now Ahab the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. God had been their God their covenant God, their provider, their redeemer, their protector. We're going to talk about it next Sunday. All, ask, all that God asks of us on our side of the covenant is complete devotion to him. But what did Ahab do? He turned away from the covenant God. He married a, a pagan woman. Not only did he begin to worship the pagan God, Baal, but he built a temple, an altar, and an image in the place that was God's. It was so bad in the eyes of God that God takes extraordinary measures. We see it in 17.1 with the calling of the great prophet Elijah. I don't have time this morning. But there's only a handful of people that rise to the level of Elijah in all the Old Testament. And I would contend this morning that the spiritual need was so great that there was a need for a great prophet. Maybe the greatest of the prophets. I don't know, you've got Moses, you've got David, you've got some greats in the Old Testament. Uh, remember Jesus, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's two figures from the Old Testament, you remember? Moses and Elijah. Actually, in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, in the last verses, it says the day will come. The next prophetic sign, which was going to be over 400 years later, there Elijah will come again. I mean, Elijah's up there. And I would say in the midst of how far God's people had gotten from him, God's answer was Elijah, and it, it's very nondescript, actually, in 17.1. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, 
there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. I know that doesn't sound like a dramatic entrance by Elijah. But in response to Ahab and Jezebel and where God's people had gone, God sends Elijah. And God says, to get their attention, I'll just withhold the rain. And we'll find out who your provider is. And so God uses the circumstances in Elijah's day of withholding the rain. Actually, and then it says in 18.1, uh, as the story goes on, three and, a, three and a half years later, actually, it says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Hmm. God's withheld the rain, actually three and a half years, to get the attention of his people. And then in the story that we look at this morning, there's the other verse that kind of brings us up to Elijah repairing the altar. And it's in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18. Um, there is this dramatic scene. Elijah has come out of nowhere and he has announced to the king three and a half years earlier, there's, no gonna, be not gonna, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. But it means God says. Three and a half years later, he shows up and says, okay, it's time to do business with God. God's going to send the rain, but we're all going to have a family meeting up on the mountain of Mount Carmel. And we're going to get some things straight here, people. That, that's just the way Brother Darrell would have presented it. But I know it's not actually in the scripture, but I think it's kind of the spirit behind it. So all of Israel, bring your prophets. Bring them all. Let's, we, we're going we're gonna to do something here. Something's going to happen today. And this, this, this moment, as they've all gathered, and Elijah speaks, and he says in verse 21, it says, And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. People, it's, a, it's time to make a decision of who you will serve. Because you're trying to serve the Lord God. You're trying to serve Baal. You're playing both sides of the fences in all parts of the field. And you're going to have to make a decision today. And I think it's, it's kind of a... It's a classic statement in the scripture, that next phrase, which is what gripped me. But the people answered him not a word. The prophet of God has called everybody together and said, you've got to choose. If God is God, then follow him. If Baal's God, then follow him. But we're going to make a decision today. And he was asking them to make a decision. And there was silence. Got to thinking, why? I think partly it was conviction in God's people's hearts. They knew who had been their covenant God. They knew their hand had been called. But the thing that strikes me is they, at that point in the story, there's not repentance. There's silence. Their hearts were not ready. Obviously, that was according to God's plan. I think there's a little bit of embarrassment because Elijah has called them out and they knew better. 
really deep down, they, even though this has probably gone on for years, they knew better. But they weren't ready to speak. Now, you remember at the end of the story when God shows up, they spoke. You, you remember it? Verse 39, what do they say? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But at this point in the story, mm -mm, just silence. Because I think there was conviction. I think there was embarrassment. They were not ready, even though they knew what their history was. It reminds me a lot of that scene in uh, the end of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15, when Joshua, at the end of his life, calls all the people together after they settled the land, and he says to them, this is another one of those come-to-Jesus family meetings, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or whether it is the gods of the people that you've come to dwell in. And then he remember, Joshua 24, 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, it's that same kind of scene, but in this instance, there's silence because the people were not ready to turn back to God. I want you to notice one other thing. So when we look at these verses in verses 30, 31, and the first half of 32, it's very significant that God speaks about the 12 stones because it speaks about their past and the covenant relationship that God has. And they're going to have to deal with that. God is your covenant God. How then shall you live if God is your covenant God, if God has been like this all of this time? Uh, if he's the one who names you and has dealt with you. But there's something else in verse 30 that I want you to see. When it says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, and it's this next phrase when it says, that was broken down. That was broken down. What I realized when I read this, and I don't know that I remember this from the, there had been an altar there before. This was not a new altar. This was an altar that had fallen down, had, I don't know, fallen apart, was not attended to, something happened. And I think it was very significant, not only did Elijah take the 12 stones to build, but he brought them to the place of, this is a place where you worship God. And it's fallen into disrepair. And I believe that picture, if you can just get that in your mind to bring, there was a reason that God said, go to the top of Mount Carmel. Because there was an altar there where they had worshipped the one true God. And it was a place that people must have attended to. And there were sacrifices made in that place. And they acknowledged the covenant God in their lives. But he brings them to the place. And he has to repair the altar that had been there. What had happened to the altar? I don't even think it was a matter of the, the worshipers, worshipers of Baal had gone through the land and said, oh, we're going to destroy and tear down the altars to the other gods. I don't think that was it at all. The altar had fallen into disrepair due to inattention. And it didn't happen in one day or one week or one month maybe not even a year. 
But it's what happens in our lives due to inattention that eventually it deteriorates. And nobody went there anymore. Nobody attended to it. Nobody sacrificed in that place and you leave it out in the weather and long enough and animals and all that, it just falls into disrepair. And I think it was a, it was a huge visual statement of God saying, no, this is, this is your relationship with God. This is where you are right now. Your, life is, your spiritual life has fallen into disrepair due to inattention. Not that anybody knocked it down. It's just that nobody cared or did anything about it. Not in one day, not in a week, not a month. You know, it's amazing. That many times we can wake up at a point in our life and we can be so far from God and we say, how did, how did I end up here? And it wasn't that we were close and on fire for God one day and all of a sudden it's gone. No. Most of the time it's just a little erosion day by day and week and month due to inattention of not keeping that relationship vibrant and what it ought to be. And so Elijah comes to that place and he re rebuilds the altar Man, one of the other just real dramatic pictures in that was that Elijah rebuilds the altar to the one true God, but the prophets of Baal built another altar. There were other altars in the land. The reason the altar to the one true God had fallen into disrepair is because they had not attended to it. The reason they hadn't attended to it is because they were worshiping other gods. There were other things in their life instead of that. And when there's other things and we don't pay attention, then over time it deteriorates and it falls into disrepair. And there has to be a prophet that shows up to say, this is a symbol, this altar in disrepair of your relationship with the covenant God who has provided for you and protected you and blessed you. I say all that to say this morning that the starting point of spiritual renewal in our life is first to assess where we are. And I think for Elijah it was to bring him up on that mountain and to show him that and to remind him of the covenant that God had made with them. For them to honestly evaluate this is where we are. I think it's true for us also today that we have to assess the start of 2018, we have to assess where we are spiritually. What does our spiritual life look like? And what is it that it ought to look like in response to what God has done in our lives? Um, 
I have some handouts. Some of them are at the front. Some of them are in the back. You can look at them. But um, on the handout on one side, it has Dr. Roy Fish's definition of uh, revival and spiritual awakening, actually. Uh, Dr. Roy Fish was a longtime professor at Southwestern Seminary, and one of the classes that marked my life was his class on spiritual awakenings. And I'll be sharing <laughs> a lot of those details this year. But Dr. Fish said that revival, and I think it's, yeah, it's on the screen. This is, this is in my handwriting from 150 years ago, sitting in that spiritual awakenings class. I mean, it's on parchment paper. Uh, written in ink from a uh, quill. I mean, it's old. <laughs> and I transcribed it. But Dr. Fish, his definition of spiritual awakening and revival, he said, an infusion of divine life into the church, which enables the church to love unconditionally, rejoice exceedingly, serve productively, live victoriously, Praise appropriately, minister freely, and witness powerfully. That's what revival looks like, is an infusion of divine life that changes the church like that. Hmm. Almost <laughs> what I want to say is, the reality is, that when the opposites of these <laughs> are demonstrated or seen in our lives, then we know it is time for God to do a new work. When we're not able to love unconditionally, when we don't rejoice exceedingly, when we can't serve productively or live victorious or praise appropriately or minister freely or witness powerfully, then we know it is time. We know that our hearts have drifted away from God. And it's as if the people in Elijah's day didn't want to acknowledge it until the prophet stood there and said, no, we have to be honest before God. This is where we are. And it's not appropriate to the covenant relationship that we have with God. But when we know that's not what is demonstrated in our life, then we know that our hearts have drifted away from God and the call is for God to turn our hearts back to Him. I want you to know this morning that until we are dissatisfied with our lukewarm spiritual lives, God will not revive us. Until we're dissatisfied. I think that was where Elijah found the people that day when he said, if God's God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. And they answered him not a word. Hmm. At that point in the story, they're not really dissatisfied with the lives they're living. They actually can't see their lives as they are. It's not until the end of the story when the prophet of Baal's, their prophets go hour after hour, and he doesn't answer by fire, and Elijah... He doesn't just pray for God to intervene, but he pours water on the wood, and everybody knows you can't light wet wood. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, but 
We have to be dissatisfied with our lukewarm wives before God will bring us new life. We have to make an assessment of where we are spiritually. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Uh, I'm going to be at the front. Byron's going to be at the front. Uh, your pastor only asks that one thing of you, that you make an honest, honest assessment of where you are spiritually. And when you come to the place where you say, I just, I'm not satisfied with this, then you cry out to God and say, God, would you bring me new life as only you can? That's all I ask of you today. Byron and I will be at the front if you need to speak to someone. The altar's open. Brother Shane's going to lead us.